Hey world, Dr. Scott Sigmund here. Today's episode of the Ortho Show podcast is going to be sponsored by Ortho Laser Orthopedic Laser Centers. I am absolutely convinced that the effects of this pandemic are going to linger for months, if not years. The way in which we deliver medical care is going to be changed forever. We have no idea when the operating rooms are open. There's going to be a long line for elective surgery. And when they do reopen, we're not even sure if we're going to be at full capacity. Basically, there's going to be a huge backlog of elective joint replacement for the elderly. There's also going to be many young patients that are going to say, you know, I just can't do surgery right now, doc. I need to get back into the workforce. I need to earn some money. I need to provide for my family. So basically, we're going to have to be forced as, as docs to find alternative treatment options for our patients for acute and chronic pain. Ortho Laser, Orthopedic Laser Centers, powered by MLS M8 Laser Technology, is going to be that solution. Uh, the FDA-cleared MLS M8 laser treatments are painless and only take about 10 minutes. So here's the deal, everybody. Our ortho laser centers are currently open in Boston, Newburgh, New York, Lexington, Kentucky, Pensacola, Florida, and soon to be opening in Atlanta, Hartford, and Portsmouth, New Hampshire. These franchise opportunities are available at this time all across the country. So whether you're an interested patient or a doctor who wants to know more, please visit www.ortholaserwithaz.com. Again, www ortholaserwithaz.com to learn more. From Medical Media, this is The Author Show. Hello, world. Dr. Scott Sigmund, your favorite opioid-sparing orthopedic surgeon, back here for another uh, episode of the Ortho Show podcast. We're excited to roll back into orthopedics at this point, post-pandemic. We have an awesome guest, an iconic leader in orthopedic surgery and orthobiologics, uh, Dr. Don Buford. We're thrilled to have him. Uh, Don is the sports medicine orthopedic surgeon, founder of the director uh, of the Texas uh, Orthobiologic Institute, as well as the director of OrthoTalk, where he's one of the leading uh, educators on ultrasound use in orthopedics. Uh, it's a real pleasure to have you on, Don. I can't thank you enough. Well, thank you for the invitation. I'm happy to be here. Looking forward to it. Yeah, it's my pleasure. So, you know, before we roll into orthopedics, I want to talk about a little bit of our shared history. What, what year were you born? I was born in 66. So I was born in 64, and I think your father got traded to the Orioles probably in 67, if I'm not mistaken. I think, I think that's right, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. bottom line is is that you and I grew up together in Baltimore for for most of our lives, which is uh, yeah. which is really pretty cool. Uh, I know that uh, you know Terry Blair, who was Paul Blair's son, was a, a good friend of mine. Mm-hmm. Went to high school with me. And one of Jim Palmer's uh, uh, daughters was running around in our circles. You and I never really got to meet, but I have such fond memories of those days for the Baltimore Orioles. When just to let everybody know, Don's father's Don Buford Senior, who was one of the iconic Baltimore Orioles. Uh, um, uh, baseball players in, in the, the dynasty era of the Baltimore Orioles when, when we were growing up. And so names like Frank Robinson, they were probably your uncles, right? Like Brooks Robinson and yeah. Boog Powell. I mean, Boog, what a great guy. And, you know, mm-hmm. and so you were hanging out and you got to spend time with those guys in the locker room and all that. How cool was that? Oh yeah. Those are my earliest memories, honestly, like in, in 70 being on the field, they used to have father, son, um, uh, games like once a year on the field for all the the five to twelve year old kids of the players, and I remember being on the field and running around and thinking I had I had made it. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> Memorial Stadium. I mean, such amazing yeah. memories for us. We would we would go to all those games and then Sabatino's for dinner and, you know, in little mm-hmm. Italy and all those great memories. And I guess all of your brothers played baseball too, right? You guys all went to, to the professional level or, or no, talk to me about that. So I've got, I'm the oldest. I've got uh, two younger brothers. We're all within about four years. So, so now the age difference doesn't seem as great as it was, but um, my youngest brother, Damon uh, played for eight years in the big leagues for a bunch of different teams, um, including the Red Sox, including the Orioles, including Texas Rangers. Um, my middle brother, Daryl, um, who's the smartest one in the family became an attorney <laughs> and, uh, became a sports agent. So he, he, he's oh, the smartest awesome. That's and he awesome. picked a profession. Yeah. He doesn't, he doesn't age out of his profession. So, so, uh, that's right. That's so exactly he's an attorney right. back in LA. Yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. And then, yeah. uh, and then you spent some time at Stanford and USC playing ball too, right? I did. I, uh, after high school, I went to Stanford for two years and, um, had a chance to play under um, a great coach back then, Mark Marquis and, and Dean Stotts. And, um, you know, just the luck of the draw was, was a year behind a fantastic, you know, all American middle infield um, where I wasn't about to break in until those guys were, were graduated and gone. So after my sophomore year, I, I did something that was rarely done at the time, which is I went to both athletic directors and got a release to transfer where I wouldn't lose a year of eligibility because I transferred within division one. So I transferred from Stanford down to USC which um, my parents, somehow I convinced them to do that and uh, transferred back to USC and finished my last two years and played under another two great coaches, uh, Coach Rod Dato and Coach Michael Espy. That's awesome. I mean, I did my fellowship at Curlin Job, so, you know, we had mm-hmm. the pleasure of taking care of the USC team. So what a great couple of good schools there you got going on there, Donnie. You did pretty good for yourself, too. So so well, let's move into orthopedics here a little bit now. So one of the things that I find, you know, pretty amazing about you is that uh, – you have a complex named after you, the Buford <laughs> Complex. Now, how, I mean, I think of people that get things named after them. They're either dead or they're really old. I mean, how, how, you got to tell us about the story because I think it's really cool. So, so um, I, I know some of the listeners have heard it before, but, you know, I, I went to high school in uh, Southern California, North Hollywood. And as a senior at this private high school, we had the opportunity to do kind of extracurricular work if we had kept up with our classwork. So basically I had enough credits to graduate high school. So I was granted the opportunity to spend afternoons off campus three days a week. And there were parents of students who had their names on a list where you could pick from these opportunities. And a lot of them were music, business, um, you know, movie business, because these were the parents of, of, of uh, the students in this North Hollywood school. And Farther down on the list were the attorneys and the sports medicine docs. And I wanted to be a doc from that early age. And I found a sports medicine guy um, who was Jim Fox, who was one of the founders of SCOE. And when I showed up at the doorstep um, day one, um, he did what all senior, good senior orthopedic practice people do is he found his junior partner and said, I forgot I signed up for this. Here's Donnie Buford. He's a senior in high school and he's going to hang out with you for six months. And, so, and, that, and that junior partner was Steve Schneider. So, oh, so, so I met Steve at 17 years old. And oh, this is awesome. back when they had, they had the carousels and I made a sound slide carousel about the shoulder and elbow. And over the course of time, developed a relationship such that when I first saw that anatomy um, called the Buford Complex now, I, I was just a, a curious kid in, in the operating room and said, hey, what's that? I haven't seen that before. And he said, I don't know. Why don't you look it up? 
And so I looked at videotapes from the SCOE docs, which was their early genius was recording everything they did arthroscopically. And so I was able to come up with, with some stats and some data. And we tried to correlate it, as you know, with some pathology or not. And, and he, in his uh, dry sense of humor, named it that. Um, <laughs> so I didn't have anything to do with that part of it. But uh, and then in true in true fellowship fashion, one of the fellows wrote it up and submitted it. And we all got our names on it. <laughs> That's unbelievable. I mean, for, for everybody that's out there listening, I mean, Steve Snyder is one of the few guys that I still call Dr. Snyder. I mean, he's just one of these guys that's has really revolutionized arthroscopic, you know, shoulder surgery and all the things that we do. And that is, that is just an awesome story from, from beginning to end. And then you were a SCOE fellow, right? Then you went back and you completed the circle. Yeah. They, they scared me because I, you know, I interviewed for the fellowship and uh, Dr. Ferkel was the fellowship director and he was sitting there with me in the interview and said, well, you know, what other places have you applied? And I had already had at this point, I already had maybe a, almost a decade of hanging out with them and yeah. said, well, this is really, I was kind of hanging my hat here, guys. You know, you guys are four <laughs> blocks from my house. <laughs> and, don't, make me go to, don't make me go to Curl and Joe. I want to stay. Yeah, don't make me go, I don't want to go across town. The traffic's terrible. Right. You know? <laughs> so, uh, so they did the fellowship and, um, um, you know, it's funny, we'll get into it, but Dr. Schneider is also really one of the first regenerative medicine orthopedic docs, at least around the shoulder. And we'll talk about how that, you know, his crimson duvet thought. Yeah, for uh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the, one of the, the reasons that yeah, you're, you're my go-to guy, Donnie, when it comes to, you know, we're, we're both on LinkedIn a lot. We have, you know, a lot of similar uh, friends across the industry and, you know, in this day and age with regenerative medicine, it, it's the wild, wild west. And, and there's just a lot of publications of things that are happening or statements that people are making, false claims, et cetera. But what I really respect about you the most is that you are an established, outstanding orthopedic surgeon that clinically operates on patients and stays state of the art. And yet you also cross over into the orthobiologic space and you're a leader in that ortho, orthobiologic space. You understand it. Uh, and you can interpret it. So the good news is for guys like myself is that I don't have to do any of that. I just look for your posts. And then when I know what, whatever Donnie's <laughs> saying, that's what I'm going to do. So I mean, how, how, how did you get there? I mean, because it really is pretty cool. It, uh, it It's an interesting story. You know, part of it, it even goes back to fellowship, just being inquisitive and, and having a mentor who forced you to continue to ask why, you know, why, 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 why do we do it this way? How can we do it better? And, um, Gosh, it's been about 12 years now since that first little project I did using PRP or platelet-rich plasma for partial thickness cuffs. And, and, and the thought behind it was even, even at that point, 15 you know, years ago, we had pretty good anchors. We had pretty good mechanical um, repairs. And the issue, even at that point, seemed to be biologic. You know, These things take a long time to heal. We're telling people six months back to work, man, there's so much room to get better there. How do we do it? And, you know, we, we use biologics and orthopedics in other areas with, with, with bone healing and things. And isn't there some way to, to help this? And so that's where the thought process initially came from. Um, and after some early actual failures clinically and some clinical research, I, I, I just stayed on the sidelines for a while until we started to understand more and more about the, the nature of healing and, and how to enhance it. So through the whole process, I've tried to stay evidence-based. Um, but part of being in clinical practice as a surgeon is we kind of know where the defects are. We kind of know the areas where we do things that don't have that 95% success rate. 
And um, we know the areas now, for example, with degenerative meniscal tears, just to throw out an, a common example now, we know that just taking those people to surgery to do a partial meniscectomy really doesn't give them any long-term benefit um, you know, over, over PRP injection if we can get their pain under control. So um, I think just knowing where there's room to improve and using biologics, if it makes sense, and we have some evidence in those areas first, is how we push the edge of the envelope forward. Um, there's you know, along with that, there's areas where surgery is still required, but man, if we can kickstart that healing process or enhance it, then we can use orthobiologics in conjunction with surgery too. So, so I think having a, a foot in both, in both areas helps, um, because I can, I can tell people, yeah, I've seen that. It doesn't do great. This may be a chance to enhance your healing, or I, I've seen that and it doesn't do great. You may not need surgery. Let's try this first. Yeah, I mean, I think your 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 point of evidence based is key, and we're going to come back to that at the end because I, I I absolutely love one of your posts. You made it probably about eight or nine months ago, but I think that evidence based is key. And, and the the problem that I have within the within the biologic space is that you get a lot of people that are way to the right and say orthobiologics are the only thing that we should be doing. Surgery is obsolete. There should be no orthopedic surgery. It should only be injections and biologics. And yeah. if you take a look at patients that have dislocating shoulders or hip labral tears or a full thickness tear of the rotator cuff or, mm -hmm. you know, a complete tear of the ACL, it seems to me that it would be difficult to imagine that orthobiologics alone would be able to get those things to heal. So I think surgery is still, we're still here. We still got a job, at least we are hoping after the pandemic, obviously. But I do, yeah. I completely agree with you. I think this, the orthobiologics in the augmentation of surgery in particular, I think is really where where many people are leading. So we thank you uh, for being the watchdog of, of LinkedIn in particular. So talk to me, why is the FDA so bad at being able to monitor this stuff and why can't they police it better? Yeah, they're, the FDA, you know, which is, which is the regulatory body in the U.S. that's charged with, with regulating these, these orthobiologics is, is admittedly in a tough spot because you've got um, – essentially no barrier to entry for these procedures. Um, anybody can call it anything. And, and now we're in a social media age where people can advertise and have these seminars and say things with very few repercussions. And so as a federal entity, the FDA does the best they can setting up guidelines and regulations. Um, and they, they even have reporting mechanisms if something um, seems to run afoul of that but they're not an enforcement body. And I think that's the problem they really have. They can send out the untitled letters, the warning letters, but if somebody really needs to be stopped from doing something, they have to go to FBI or you know Justice Department or some other entity. So um, when you think about, even if it was just an orthopedic surgeon issue, that would still be a ton of us that they would have to regulate. Now you open that up to anybody with an MD or even worse than that, I shouldn't say worse than that, but anybody who has a medical uh, background, because you have uh, naturopathic doctors, chiropractors, nurse practitioners, all of these people um, in some level can have a stake in doing these procedures. And so the regulatory field is, is extremely broad. And so I, I think we need a few landmark enforcement decisions, which have started to happen, actually, actually accelerated by COVID, interestingly enough, that will, I think... Um, rein back in some of these um, uh, clinicians, procedures, things like that, that, that are being done without really any evidence or basic science um, background behind them. 
Yeah, I mean, we got Donnie Buford on the case, man. We don't got to worry about it. I mean, like, <laughs> I see these posts these people put up, you know, the wild, wild west, drink this potion and life's going to be good. But you're like, exosomes, you're all over it. I mean, have you ever gotten yeah. in trouble? Is it, has anybody, like, you know, called you out on it? Or I, I have I have a, a wall of honor in my office, literally, in my pod where I see patients, where I post my cease and desist letters. <laughs> uh, because, because you know, it, it's not, it's not, you're, you're, you're not, you're not in trouble if you're telling the truth. Yeah. And so yeah. if somebody's saying that you can use this product to cure uh, dementia and I say, no, you can't, there's no evidence for it. You can't, you can't do that. And I get a cease and desist. I, I, I politely always respond and say, it's great. Point out what I said that wasn't factual and I will retract that part of it. And usually they want to go away because their interest is not in being regulatory compliant. So, so I, I've had several of those letters. Um, I think I'm up to 100 percent where every company that sent me a cease and desist has now received a letter from the FDA saying stop. <laughs> so, you got you got a job, man. You're going to go to work for the so, FDA when it's all done. So, well, there's a bunch of us. It's not just me, but but um, but but again, you know, the, the the barrier to entry is so low, unfortunately, and people can advertise so quickly and throw up a website and disappear just as fast. So um, so kudos to the FDA for what they can do. Um, they, they have been accelerating. It's interesting with this pandemic, there's been a lot of regenerative medicine advertising specifically towards these, um, uh, towards pandemic, um, you know, illnesses like ARDS and the FDA has been extremely rapid uh, to respond and very aggressive in responding. And it's been fantastic, uh, just to see them be this active in the field. So you and I have some common ground in laser. I'll tell you, uh, we'll roll mm-hmm. into this story for the FDA and that, you know, I, I decided that I thought it would be a good idea to maybe repurpose uh, our laser and use it in the setting of COVID because of the really powerful anti-inflammatory effects that lasers mm-hmm. can have at the cellular level. And so mm-hmm. I literally picked up the phone and called the FDA. And six hours mm-hmm. later, somebody called me back. And over a six-day window, we got permission to use you know our laser in this field as a, as a non-significant risk device. And so it's mm-hmm. amazing to me in the setting of this COVID pandemic how, how the world has really changed in, in the mm-hmm. regulatory process in particular. Uh, mm-hmm. So that was a, a real feel-good story for us out of the FDA. So how's your laser doing? I know we have some common ground there. You've been using laser in the biologic space too, or what you've been doing? I, I, I do. I, I think, um, you know, I've got, a, I've got a hot sheet of about 10 ideas that I'm always trying to knock off for studies. And, and laser, using the laser in some aspect, either alone or in conjunction with, with the orthobiologic treatments, is like four of the 10 ideas I have, you know, whether prepping somebody or prepping an area or, or as a post injection, um, kind of longer term treatment option. So, um, I'm excited about that. I'll tell you the truth. The laser that I have right now is literally about 10 yards from me. <laughs> I've been treating my back. <laughs> <laughs> so, we got a believer. We got a believer. Yeah, so, people. I be- <laughs> so I believe in it that strongly. Um, and then my son and my daughter know how to treat my back. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> so, so, uh, so I believe in it. And, and it's just, like you said, there, there's, there's a lot of evidence behind it. It, it works at the cellular level. Um, you know, uh, gone are the days when, when, when a thoughtful clinician should just say no without any, <laughs> without, without looking at the data. You know, yeah. Yeah. you're absolutely right. The basic science behind laser is actually quite strong. And I'm yeah. I'm I'm right there with you. I think that, it, you know, it clearly demonstrates at the cellular level, increased metabolism within the cell and increased the healing process and reducing inflammatory response. 
So the idea of, you know, a PRP stem cell, you know, augmented with laser to me, I think would be very exciting study to sort of demonstrate perhaps, you know, improved clinical efficacy with that. So yeah, man, go with it for sure. Um, So let's talk a little bit more, you know, about regenerative medicine. I mean, there's no question the, 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 the body of literature that's out there, you know, either pro or con, we're getting to the point now where we're really starting to see some literature that's, that's really pointing in the direction that orthobiologics is going to help and it's going to make a difference. I think the problem is for a lot of clinicians and, and understanding is really how it works. You know, mm-hmm. I, I talk about orthobiologics and I say, you know, if you think about it, you know, we're, we're, we're doing it like you go in, you grab the, the, uh, you do your BMAC and you, you you put it into the syringe and it's like a shotgun, you know, you got a thousand pellets in there and maybe, you know, maybe three or four of those pellets are the thing that's really going to make it work, you know, but for now, you know, this is what we have. And so I think we, we really need some really good basic science to figure out what is in that BMAC that's really making the difference. So talk to, can you give us some examples of what you think and how that's working for us? Sure. There, there There's some things that are, reasonably well-known and well-studied, especially in, in BMAC at this point, um, and to a lesser extent, uh, they, they exist in PRP. Um, some of them are known very anti-inflammatory uh, proteins or, or cytokines, like IRAP is one, um, IRAP, that uh, it's an interleukin receptor antagonist protein. It's a, it's a very well-known, powerful anti-inflammatory. Um, and, and that's something that's in very high concentration in bone marrow concentrate versus just our regular bone marrow or versus our, our blood or, or in PRP, for example. Um, there's other growth factors that have known effects in our bodies, like, like vascular endothelial growth factor, you know, fibroblast growth factor, a, a whole litany of things that we come across in residency. And, and it's just to get past the test at that level. But it really works clinically when you when you see that it's in these things that are, that are used successfully. Um, another big one is alpha-2 macroglobulin or A2M for short. Um, there's an entire company based around just harvesting A2M and using that as a separate clinical treatment. And, and we found that that exists in BMAC in a higher concentration than in just A2M alone most of the time. So, so for that example, BMAC seems to be enough um, to give A2M um, uh, therapy to patients. And you're right, how those work in conjunction and the interplay is not something we may ever be able to know until we get quantum mechanics and quantum computing, but um, but we can measure the clinical output and we and we can do that in a, in a reasonably objective way. Um, a lot of times, you know, there's really two wings to this, in my opinion. You know, we we have the regenerative side, which is you know someone's got tendinopathy, someone's got uh, post surgical, where we're trying to accelerate a healing response or create one where there wasn't one before, and then we've also got people that have chronic degenerative conditions like arthritic conditions. And here we're looking more for palliative types of treatment. And so um, honestly, I use it much more for palliative care because my number one patient is a patient with bilateral knee arthritis, closely followed by back pain from facets or um, disc disease, closely followed by hip arthritis or shoulder. And so those indications tend to be palliative. And then you get into the chronic tendinopathies where people haven't gotten better with other less invasive modalities. And now we try an orthobiologic. Yeah, it makes it makes sense. I mean, one of my favorite Star Trek episodes is when 
they come back to earth and bones is walking through the hospital and there's some woman on a stretcher and he's like, why are you here? And she says, Oh, I'm here for a kidney transplant. He's like, Oh, this is barbaric. He's like, take one of these. And she takes a pill. And five minutes later, she's running out of the hospital. She, he gave me a kidney and a pill. He gave me a kidney. And a pill. I mean, and, and you know, we may look back, Oh my God, you're, you're really going to take that thing and stick that into somebody's pelvis and take out the BMAC. But you know, hopefully we'll be able to figure out the stuff that's in there and be able to hone in on the science of that. But there, it, it's there. I mean, You're absolutely right. I think the clinical outcomes are really what we need to identify here. It's, you know, we see the same thing in the laser space that there's no commercial insurance payer or CMS that has any interest in paying for laser therapy at this point. I get a sense that they have no desire to pay for anything more or new or different, despite Mm -hmm. the fact that there is growing evidence that, you know, PRP for knee osteoarthritis, for example, can really help Mm -hmm. patients for pain relief and and instead Mm -hmm. of some of the corticosteroids and viscose and the other things that are out there. So, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a real interesting spot. It's something that definitely has to be studied more as we go forward. So you keep on it, brother. You keep us informed. You keep those crazy people off the podium and make sure that we understand what's going on. One of my favorite posts that you mm-hmm. made, I don't know, it was maybe six or eight months ago. You, you mm-hmm. went through and you looked at all the major orthopedic journals. Mm-hmm. And I hear it all the time. I am only going to practice level one randomized control trials. That's how I practice medicine. And that's the only way I'll do it. Right. So if you took mm-hmm. a look at all the five journals, right, you put them all together. Yeah. Tell us about yeah. the level of evidence that's really being published out there right now. Yeah. So we took, we took, I think it ended up being six of the most well-known orthopedic journals, JBJS, Arthroscopy Journal of Sports Medicine. Um, basically six of the top 10 orthopedic journals um, as ranked by an impact factor. And uh, we looked at a full year of every single clinical study in every one of those journals. And we used the, either the, the author or the editor's identification of the level of evidence, which basically most journals now require us to, to list that, and it's reviewed. And we ran that data for all those journals for actually being 13 months. And what we found was that the average level of evidence in orthopedic journals was three. And that was that was independent of journal. So every journal, that was the average, every issue that was the average, um, for every measurable time frame that was the average. And so I made the blanket statement, the average level of evidence for orthopedic research right now is three. Period. <laughs> I mean, how did you get some feedback on that? What how'd that roll out? Uh, yeah, I'm still getting feedback. I'll probably get more after this. No but, cease but, and desist letter. That's good. Yeah. When you, you think about it, you know, doing clinical studies, that's, it's, it's very hard to have an, an RCT. It's great when we can get them but it's, it's an incredibly difficult thing to run and manage um, and to have it have enough power to be relevant. Um, obviously, so much of what we do is based on level three evidence, you know, a case control study or, or kind of a look what I did retrospective review compared to control. Yeah, and, and, and that's the reality. And so, especially when you're in the innovation space, as you're trying new ideas and new things, you always get that same pushback. You need to show me level one evidence before I'm going to make a change and move into something new. At the end of the day, however, most of us are using level three evidence to make clinical decisions on a daily basis. So it's a little bit of a, a conflict there, but really great stuff. You know, Donnie, I, I can't thank you enough. You know, as I said, you're our watchdog. You're our police officer out there in the orthobiologic space. You're a leader in, in ultrasound. We can't thank you enough. And again, innovation within your orthopedic surgical space as well. So we can't thank you enough for being on the show today. Oh, my pleasure. I greatly appreciate the invitation to see you.
Yeah, all the best, man. We're bringing you the best of the best here at the Ortho Show podcast. This is Dr. Scott Sigmund. I want to thank our sponsor, Ortho, uh, Ortho Laser Orthopedic Laser Centers. You can find us on the Ortho Show podcast at all places that you listen uh, to podcasts. Again, Dr. Scott Sigmund, hashtag follow the fro, host of the Ortho Show. Till next time.